Well, good morning, Bethel. Uh, I have been gone the past couple of weeks uh, out moose hunting like uh, many of you. And uh, we did not get a big, big moose this year, so there won't be a good story. But we did get a tasty moose. The little moose tastes better. And that's the way we console ourselves who didn't get the big one. So uh, let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to guide our time in the Word. Father, we're grateful to be able to gather together as your people to know you better through the study of your word. We're grateful to be able to rehearse the gospel with one another in song and in word and in deed. Uh, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate uh, the scriptures to us now. Uh, Give us attention not only to the word but to our lives that we might bring the two into harmony. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So I am just getting home from uh, a trip and whenever... I first get home, there is always this time of uh, sort of debriefing uh, when I arrive, whether it's hunting or vacation or a conference or something like that. Uh, You know, I I get together with Amy, of course, right when I get home, and usually she briefs me on what's happening with the family, you know, what kid has really acted out while I was gone, and what car broke down, and, you know, whatever, what things need my attention at home. Then I meet with Sharina, and we we talk about the office and sort of the goings-on of the church at a macro level, and... And uh, so she briefs me on these kinds of things. I meet with Adam. We talk about shepherding issues and some, maybe some crisis things that have come up that need my attention when I get back. And, uh, so these are some of the things that I do. And then eventually I get into my, my email and my phone messages and these kinds of things. And usually by the end of the first day home, I need a vacation again, right? You know, and I know you guys all run into this as well. There's this whole process of reentry and getting briefed on what's going on, and we find a similar thing actually happening for us in Ezra chapters 7 through 10, so if you'll turn there in your Bibles. Uh, Here we find Ezra leading the second wave of exiles um, out of Babylon and home to Jerusalem to join their countrymen who made the same journey 80 years prior. And right in the middle of these three chapters, at the beginning of chapter 9, as Ezra arrives with the second wave of exiles of about 5,000 that are with him, he gets briefed on the situation in Jerusalem from some of the leaders, and he's so distraught by what he finds that we're told this, that he tore his tunic and his cloak, that's his inner and his outer garment, and he pulls hair from his own head and from his beard. You know, just pulling from the head won't do. It's both places. And then we're told that he sat down appalled for hours of what the text calls self-abasement. I don't know if you know what that is, but I imagine you could imagine. And so the long and short of it is this, that Ezra, as he comes into the land and he sees the compromise of the first wave of exiles that got home before them, that he is grieved and he, he actually does something that I think is very instructive for us. There's three things. He's grieved by his sin. He leads the people in corporate confession. And then he helps lead them to change their ways. He's grieved. He leads them in confession. And he leads them in substantive change in their life. Um, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. At the beginning of chapter 7, it starts off with the words, After these things. After these things, as though it's just kind of like the next moment. But in fact, that phrase, those words introduce for us or describe for us a gap of over 60 years. 
chapter 6 ends with the completion of the temple. Then after these things, 60 years later, we pick up with Ezra and the second wave as they prepare to return. And in these first verses, we're introduced to the man himself, the author of this book, uh, for, you know, the man for whom the book is named. And Derek Kidner, who's a great Old Testament scholar, gives us a very apt description of him. He calls him our scholar priest, our scholar priest. So look with me in Ezra 7.1. After these things, again, 60 years, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and it goes on with the whole list of names. We'll skip down to verse 5. The son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the high priest. And that's really the critical point for which the, the list is given here of this, of this uh, genealogy here. What we are meant to see is the purity of God's leader. We are meant to see his credentials and his qualifications to lead. We are meant to see, in fact, his pedigree. That's what the text is trying to show us. Ezra comes from the priestly line of Aaron. And the whole point here, if you'll remember, God has judged Judah for their sin, for their idolatry, which they had been warned against by the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. He has judged them by carrying them off uh, into uh, Babylonian captivity, into exile. These are all acts of discipline and correction. You remember that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Sacred artifacts were taken out of the temple and carried off, and the people, a remnant of the people, were also carried off. And just as, uh, as Jeremiah makes very clear for us, this act, this was not just a random unfortunate event or the, the rowdy neighbors who came in and ransacked Jerusalem. This was specifically an act of discipline or correction from God. Uh, it was the chastening hand of God to loosen their grip on sin and to turn their hearts back to himself. And there's a lesson for us in that, which is that God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. It is his loving hand which will bring correction and discipline and confrontation into your life to loosen your heart's grasp on sin and to turn you to him. He will do that. Friend, if you are persisting in sin, then you are courting God's correction. And it is an act of love as a father disciplines a son. But what we see now with Judah is that he is rebuilding his people. After the timeout, after the correction and the discipline, he is rebuilding his people, reconstituting them to be a holy nation. And he starts with the rightful leader, a leader who has the right to lead them uh, because of his family line. And so the first, uh, first wave of exiles under Zerubbabel, as we learned, they moved back into the land and they were really loaded with just a, a raft of builders and workers uh, that 50,000 was loaded with that type. This second wave of exiles, 80 years later, this group is uh, led by a scholar priest who is of the right descent of the line of Aaron. Now, one caveat we should just make note of here, too, is this, that just because one has the right pedigree uh, doesn't guarantee one's purity, right? Uh, we see this again and again uh, in our world, and we know this from the scriptures, too. We know that Moses himself, God's man, was the one who disobeyed and struck the rock. And for that was disallowed in the promised land. We know that Aaron, the great, 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 great grandpappy of Ezra himself here, we know that Aaron uh, was the one who in fact first led Israel into idolatry, right? 
after the, after the exodus and coming out of Egypt. It was he who led them to form this golden calf and practice in idolatry. So we know that pedigree alone is no guarantee of purity. But we are meant to see here that at the very least, this man is qualified or that he's not disqualified. He has the right to lead. And, and, and we are meant to see sort of this purity in the leadership um, at first here. So of first importance with any leader is their qualifications to lead. And secondly, of second importance in any leader is their skill or their aptitude to lead. And we also find that Ezra has this in spades as well. Not only is he qualified, but he is skilled, as the text tells us. Look at verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. If you are the type that writes in your Bible or underlines key things, key phrases, underline this one, for the hand of the Lord was upon him, you're going to see it not only here, but five more times in the next two chapters. And that repetition is important. The author is making a point. Verse 7. Some of the Israelites include including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. There's the second time. Verse 10, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Now, both verses 6 and verses 10 really highlight for us the skill uh, of Ezra with regard to the law. And I have to tell you, my favorite translation, you guys know I preach from the NIV, so you know that's my favorite, but even, even more than that, the 1984 version of the NIV. That's, that's my native Bible tongue right there. That's the one that I grew up with. That's the one I memorized scripture in. That's where I'm comfortable. I know the phrases there, and I, I like the way that it reads. And, and uh, I, I, I do preach from the NIV because I think it is more consistent with uh, of what we're trying to do in, in preaching on a Sunday morning and to grasp the big idea. That's why I preach from the NIV. But I don't like the way the, the 2011 version translates it here that he was well-versed in the law. I think that's thin for what Ezra really had going for him here. Both the 84 NIV, the ESV, and the NAS all render this that he was skilled with the law. And I think that's a lot better. I think it's more accurate by showing us that Ezra, more than just having head knowledge, more than just knowing what the law was, he knew how to use it. He was skilled. He knew how to bring it to bear in his own life by knowing it and bring it to bear in the lives of others. He was skilled with it. It's like the difference between a man who knows what a hammer does and a man who knows how to swing a hammer, right? You've seen the difference between the two. Actually, several years ago, our family had an unexpected uh, medical expense that came up, and I needed to earn a little more money than I was at the time, and so I took a very quick side job for a couple weeks just to do some basic labor to earn a little extra for the bill. And uh, so I went into a construction company and said, hey, I'm just here for some dumb labor. You know, I don't have any skills myself, so what can I do for you? And they asked a funny question. It was, do you know how to swing a hammer? Of course they know how to. What are you talking about? I don't know how to swing a hammer. What kind of question is that? Uh, and you guys can tell probably by looking at me or looking at my, uh, my response to that. Um, 
I didn't know how to swing a hammer, as it turns out. Uh, they took me on the job site, and I started working, and they moved me from one place and said, listen, why don't you do the, the deconstruction over here? <laughs> Use the back end of that hammer to tear some of these walls down. Oh, okay. And uh, so there's a difference, right? There's a difference between one who knows something in his head, knows what something does, or knows what it is, and one who is skilled with it and knows how to use it. Ezra was skilled. He knew how to handle the word of the Lord. He knew what it said. He brought it to bear in his life. He brought it to bear in the lives of others. The Hebrew word here for skilled is mahir, which means literally quick or ready. And uh, you, you guys have probably heard about workplace experts who talk about the concept of flow on the job site. You know, it's, it's where the workers get to a certain uh, degree of proficiency with their craft and with their tools and their trade that they move swiftly and quickly. You can watch somebody uh, who, who, is, who is like this, sort of in the flow of their job, and it's almost mesmerizing to see the speed with which they do something. And it's not because they're in a hurry, it's because they've mastered their craft. Their tool becomes an extension of themselves. And this is the way the law of the Lord was in the skilled hands of Ezra. He saw it as a gift and a treasure to engage, to apply, and to share. And verse 10 tells us how this was accomplished in his own life, and it shouldn't come as any surprise. It says, For Ezra devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He devoted himself. If you're looking for a life verse, I suggest to you, this is a good one to commit yourself to. Um, I think Derek Kidner, again, the Old Testament scholar, who I'm going to quote several times this morning because he had such a good grasp of this passage, he makes the observation about the sequence of Ezra's discipline here. He says this, with study, conduct, and teaching put deliberately in this right order, each of these was able to function properly at its best. Study was saved from unreality, conduct from uncertainty, and teaching from insincerity and shallowness. He devoted himself to its study, to its observance, and to its teaching. The flow was, was right. The, the sequence was right. Uh, and so, friends, how does a hammer become an extension of your arm to do what you intend it to? Uh, or how does a backhoe do exactly what you will it to do? How do you stitch effortlessly and perfectly in, in straight lines? How do you get to that point of proficiency? You spend time in your craft. How does the word of the Lord get to the point where you are moving with it naturally in your knowledge of the mind of God, in your knowledge of what he would have you do in practicing obedience and in how you would share and encourage or confront or rebuke or instruct others. There's no substitute for time. Spend time with your craft. Spend time in the word of the Lord, grappling with the text again and again and again until it becomes second nature, until your heart resonates with God's heart because it's in you and has formed you and is an extension of you. You devote yourself to it. There is an expression that I have written in the front of my children's Bibles. Because as they grow up, this is what I hope for them. And it says this, read it through, pray it in, live it out, and pass it on. Read it through, pray it in, 
live it out, and pass it on. Because my great hope for my children is not simply that they would be well-versed in the Bible. That's too thin. I want them to know how to handle it. I think of that passage in 2 Timothy 2. It says, do your best to present yourself uh, as to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. With regard to the scriptures, I don't want my kids to you know, have a shiny Bible that doesn't have their fingerprints or smudges on it or underlines in it. I, I want their Bibles to be well-worn because they've read it, because they have entered into the process of discovery themselves. I cannot compete with discovery. Do you know this? I can stand here and preach till I'm blue in the face. I can preach long. I can preach hard. I can use illustrations and quotes and do everything I can to bring to you the word of truth in the best of my ability. But I cannot compete with your own personal discovery in the word of God. When you read something and the Holy Spirit illuminates it to you and you understand its meaning and it gets to your heart and it convicts you and it compels you and you set about meditating on it and praying it into your life and living it out and you share that with another person, that is the word of the Lord alive in you. And I can't compete with that as a preacher. So I hope you don't come to church. I hope you don't come here to simply become well-versed in the scriptures. It's too thin. You need to be skilled because you've devoted yourself to its study and observation and to its sh- into sharing it. Um, I think we also uh, we learned something interesting here. I think the temptation for us as Christians today is to fall to either the, to one of two extremes. On the one hand, we can look at the scriptures and oftentimes we can see, well, it seems like God is the only one who works and acts and God is sovereign and so we're really inconsequential to what's happening in this world. On the other hand, we can think, well, God, you know, once upon a time got things started but he seems to be absent on the scene and it really seems to be in the hands of man today. And we can very easily kind of fall to one of these two extremes But one of the things that we'll see through the books of both Ezra and Nehemiah, which we start next week, is the scriptures won't allow us to fall to either one of those two extremes. We can't be fatalistic as though it's only God who works, and neither are we to be humanistic as though it's only man who works. We consistently see throughout the scriptures that God uses the activity of mankind as they are faithful and as they go through the task that God has given to them, but he empowers their action to propel his program. And so even here, I think the temptation is to credit Ezra for his success, right? Look at this guy. He's a good guy. He devoted himself. He knows the law. So clearly all we have to do is be that good, and it all goes well for us, right? The passage won't allow us to do that because we keep coming to this refrain that says, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Yes, Ezra was obedient, but it was the hand of the Lord that willed and that acted. And we see this again and again. Ezra was faithful, but God advanced his own cause. And we see this here in verse 6. There's this real subtle statement that's given, but I think it's instructive. We're told that King Artaxerxes granted him, granted Ezra, everything he had asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. You see, Ezra played an important role, he was the actor. And he went and obeyed, and he did what God had instructed him to do. But it was once again the Lord who moved the heart of the king. We've learned this before. God acts upon the human heart. 
You may think your heart is your own domain for which you are solely responsible. But the scripture teaches us that the Lord acts upon the heart. God had moved the heart of Cyrus to release the captives. Remember this? He had moved in the heart of Darius to supply uh, the resources needed to carry out uh, the move. And he once again now moves upon the heart of King Artaxerxes to release the captives, to enrich them, and to empower Ezra to govern them as he, he saw fit. Uh, now, the Babylonian king gives us all of his instructions. Those are here in, in his letter in verses 12 through 26, which I'm not going to read for you. You can look at that uh, yourself at your own time. But I think we are given the encouragement here again to see that we are foolish when we think that earthly leaders have power. Let me say that again. We are foolish when we think that earthly kings have power or are powerful figures. The scripture teaches us that God places people where he wants them and they are but pawns in his hand to move as he chooses. The Lord steers the heart of the king like a water course, it says in Proverbs 21. And so our hope, friends, if I can give you this encouragement, our hope, our hope for shalom in this world, for things being whole and right as they ought to be, it's not in a president, thank God. It's not in Congress. It's not in local statesmen. It's not in our boss. It's not in a pastor, thank God. It's not in our spouse. It's not in a good counselor. And it's not in a good friend. Our hope for peace and shalom in this world is in God Almighty, who moves in the hearts of people as he wills. So Ezra does the right thing. He asks, he makes the request. But it's the Lord who answers through the heart of Artaxerxes by granting the request. Now, I want to just give you a very brief thing. Sometimes as we look at measurements and numbers and money and these kinds of things in the Scripture, it can be lost in us because we don't get the currency. Let me just, as you look at verses 12 through 26, we're told a little bit of how much wealth is sent with the exiles. And I'll just tell you this. It's astounding. Are you ready? We're told that they're given 650 talents of silver. That's a weight of, uh, or a measurement of weight. And uh, if we bring that into today's prices, let's say $20 an ounce for silver, uh, that would be about $16 million, which sounds like a lot of money until you realize uh, they were given another $2.4 million just in silver artifacts. So here we have $18 million, and that sounds impressive for a group of 5,000 people who are leaving captivity and going home, right? $18 million. And then we realize, wait a second, um, there's gold here too, 100 talents of gold. And when you add that up in today's prices, the gold itself comes out to $140 million. So let's say it this way. Our second wave of exiles leaving Babylonian captivity and returning home are embarking on this 1,000-mile journey with a cool $180 million stashed in their luggage somewhere, right? That's, that's this picture. It's even more astounding when you consider the fact that they're not taking this home to build the temple because the temple is built. It was completed 60 years earlier. This money is simply coming home to adorn the temple, which is amazing. And so the phrase, uh, yeah, kind of rings true when we see the hand of the Lord was upon him. Who releases those kinds of funds, right? Who says, you know, these exiles, ready to get rid of them? 
Let's send him with 180 million. Is that the heart of man? Or is that what the Lord does in a person's heart? It was the Lord's work. C.S. Lewis has an expression. He calls it left-handed strength. Maybe you've heard this before. We all have a dominant hand. Let's say it's our right hand. And with that hand, we can grasp and we can twist and contort. and We can do some powerful things with our dominant hand. Uh, with our off hand, with our left hand, maybe not so much. We can go through the motions, but the strength isn't there. And Lewis makes a point with that. He says, and so it is with us in God, that we are to practice obedience and we're to go through the motions of what God asks us to do, but we don't do it with our own manipulative, contorting strength. We do it as a subtle act of obedience with left-handed strength, and we see what God empowers. And I think Ezra is a good example to us of this. And Ezra, again, he, as we look at this, we are tempted to maybe credit him and say, wow, he, you know, he's the guy. Ezra's the man. Well done, sir. But he won't even let us give him the credit. We see a bit of a, benedict, or a, a doxology here, verses 27 and 28 where he gets it right and he makes sure we put our attention on the right person here. He says, Praise to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it in the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all of the king's powerful officials because the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. I took courage and I gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. And so Ezra, who is our scribe and our author here, he will not let us credit himself. Ezra knows whose power was at work. He knows who has his back. He knows to whom deserves all of the glory and the honor and the praise. Ezra, as one who has been instructed by the law, who has devoted himself to its study and observance and teaching, will not allow us to credit him, but to give glory to God. So first of all, we are meant to see the purity of Ezra, the leader, God's leader here. Secondly, we're meant to see the purity of God's people as they get ready for this return home. Now, we're going to pick up the pace here pretty fast. So lick your fingers and get ready to go here with the Bible. But um, In Ezra 8, we're given this another list of names in verses 2 through 14. And we've already seen the pedigree of Ezra, but now we're going to see um, we're going to see sort of the purity of God's people. That's what we're meant to get from this. So look at Ezra 8.1. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. I'm not going to read all the names to you for your sake and for mine. Down to verse 15. And I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Ahava. And we camped there three days. When I checked uh, among the people and the priests... I found no Levites there. Now, let me just say this. That last phrase, I found no Levites there, is a little bit of a record scratch moment in this story, right? Because if you look at the king's letter, uh, he said anybody who desires can go and can return home. Anybody. You can go to your rightful home and worship Yahweh in the temple that has been constructed. You would think the Levites would be like, yeah, that's what we want to do. That's what we're made for. Let's go. And none of them showed up. So a little bit of a record scratch. We'll come back to that in a second here. But a couple of things we're meant to see. And one of those is this. We're meant to see that these are families being reunited to families who went in the first wave. As you look at the list of names, and if you were to compare them, you will find some of the same names. You will find uh, the same lineage. So we're meant to see that these are families joining families who have gone before them. And secondly, and maybe more importantly, we are meant to see... 
that these people who had been in exile had preserved their Jewish lineage. They had maintained their purity even in exile. When the prophet Jeremiah gave them instructions before their, uh, their captivity, before their exile in Babylon, he told them, Give your sons and daughters in marriage. Grow and increase and do not decrease in number. That's the instruction he gave them going into exile. Uh, But God didn't want them to intermarry with the Babylonians or with any other race. Uh, He wanted to preserve themselves as a holy nation devoted to him. So the concept of intermarriage, I don't have a lot of time to go into all of that. I would just direct you to Deuteronomy chapter 7 to see the instruction of the Lord and to see the rationale for it. But overall, God is trying to preserve for himself a chosen people and a holy nation. And for one to intermarry with another nation, it wasn't just a social issue. It was a religious issue. It was a spiritual issue. It was to renounce the Lord and to embrace uh, another person and really to embrace idolatry. That was the heart problem here. And so we're meant to see that this second wave of exiles as they're coming in this, this lineage that we're given here, this genealogy, we're meant to see that they preserved themselves. They preserved the family line as God had wanted them to, even while they were in exile. The next thing we needed to get here is this, that these leaders um, who eventually showed up were actually good leaders. Um, we see Ezra basically gathering the people together, and as he examines of, of this group of you know, four to 5,000 who are there, he realizes, well, we forgot something. We, something critical is missing here. And again, it was the Levites. None of the Levites were there. Uh, for those of you who've been out hunting recently, you know, before you go, you've, you've got your list of things you've got to gather together. And it's exhaustive and it's exhausting. And there's some things, right? If you forget them, it's like trip over, right? You can pack all this stuff up. But if you leave your four-wheeler key at home, you're not going anywhere. Or you can get all the way out to the field and realize, I didn't pack any ammunition. <laughs> you know, this is going to be a sightseeing trip. So there's just some things you can't forget because they're mission critical. And Levites, for Ezra here, are mission critical because what the Levites did, in contrast to priests, the priests helped with the offering of sacrifices. That was their primary responsibility. But the Levites taught. They taught the word of the Lord. They were to give instruction to the people. So if Ezra is leading this second wave of exiles back home to rebuild and restore them spiritually, but he's got no teachers, he has a problem. This is a mission-critical absence here, and so he sets out to look for uh, some some, uh, Levites who will join him in the task. And we're told once again, we see this this integration of his faithful effort and yet the credit is given to the Lord who works behind the scenes. We see this, this refrain again in verse 18. Because the gracious hand of God was upon us, the right leaders were found. And they come forward here. And so the purity of, these, of, this, of this group and of the Levites here, now that's being shown to us. And again in verse 20 it says, they were all registered by name. So Ezra is going through great lengths to just show us the purity of himself as a leader, that he has the right to do this, that they have the right people, they preserve themselves, they preserve the lineage, uh, they've got good leaders, they look to the Lord, even before they take off on the journey, they pray. These are men of prayer, and they ask that God would help them. And finally, we're meant to see their personal integrity. 
Um, for sake of time, I'm not going to read these verses to you. I'll just kind of summarize them, verses 23, or 24 through 34. But just remember this. These guys, 5,000 people or less, 1,000-mile journey, four to five months, carrying $180 million in gold and silver and artifacts. And what these passages tell us, what they do is that they distribute the money. They choose 12 leaders, and they sort of pass it out and distribute it for some real practical reasons of carry, I'm sure, and also for protection, so that if anything happened to one person, they wouldn't lose the whole, but they would only lose a portion. So they diversify, and for practical reasons, they spread it out. And at the very end of the passage, what we're told in verse 34 was that when they arrived, everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. We are meant to see the integrity of these leaders who eventually showed up. Uh, And then finally, we see again that all of this, we cannot credit to just the purity of these people, but we see again the hand of the Lord was upon them. For the sixth and the final time in two chapters, the hand of the Lord was upon them. All right, so we're bringing all of this to bear at this critical point, which is number three. This is probably the longest point I've ever written in my years of preaching, and that's this. We are meant to see the purity of these second wave exiles contrasted against the sinful compromises of the first wave exiles. That's what Ezra is doing for us here. He is our scribe, he is our author, and he's taking us into his own mind's eye. And we get a chance to see his passion, his devotion to the Lord, to his law. We see the fact that he's the rightful leader, he's a good man, he's done, he's been faithful in making the request. God has blessed them with all of this good response from King Artaxerxes. They get the right leaders who practice integrity. They're going home. They're going to the temple after over 130 years away from their place of worship for being slaves for 130 years. They're going home, the people of God, to be reconstituted in holiness and worship, to practice sacrifices, which they haven't been able to do. He's excited, he's motivated, and he wants us to see all of this and to be Excited about all of the anticipation here so that when he gets there and we see what happens, that our hearts are grieved as was his. That's what he's constructing for us. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from neighboring people with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Ezra's heart is broken at this. See all of the purity and the excitement, the hand of the Lord upon them, only to arrive in the land and to find it corrupt, bereft of holiness. Just as God had warned hundreds of years earlier, the people had intermarried, and that social uh, compromise was really a spiritual compromise, and idolatry and disobedience was rampant. 
And the news is made even worse when it's reported that it was the leaders and the officials that led the way. The leaders had led their unfaithfulness. There is a Latin phrase, corruptio optimi pessimi. Corruptio optimi pessimi, which means the corruption of the best is the worst. And at this particular moment, at this briefing, Ezra's heart is broken. And that takes us to our final point here, because we are meant to see by his response how God's people ought to deal with sin. Um, Chapter 9, verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the Lord, of, of the words of the God of Israel, gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice, and then... At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. Now listen to this prayer. This is what we would call a priestly prayer. Not because it's sanctimonious, but because the priest includes himself in in the sins of the people. Notice the language. It's not they and them and you. It's I and we and ours. It is a priestly prayer. He says, I too am ashamed and disgraced my God, too ashamed to lift my head or lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now... Our God, what can we say after this? We have forsaken the command you gave through your servant, the prophets, when they said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by its corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again? And intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, none of us can stand in your presence. This is a priestly prayer. Not casting off blame, not pointing the finger at others, 
but coming with his people before a holy God, very aware of his own sin, very aware of the people's culpability before the Lord communally. Um, And I think he shows us in how we ought to respond. First of all, with regard to sin, we should grieve because sin grieves the heart of God. I want to tell you this. I do not think our culture responds to sin this way. I don't, not even the Christian culture. If I can say this, and this is a little bit hard, and I'm going to be a little bit provocative here, we're so quick to go to grace, we're hardly even aware of our own sin. Grace is there for us. Please don't hear me saying otherwise. I just sometimes think we get there so quick we don't even realize the weight of our sin against the holy God. And Ezra shows us differently here. Uh, Ezra's reaction too, it's not contrived, it's genuine. Uh, I'll tell you a story. Uh, growing up, there were two childhood friends of mine, BJ Benjamin and his brother Toby, and they lived nearby, and they had a room in their house that was devoted to play. They had a loft in it, and I loved to go over and spend the night with them. They were great friends. And um, as one does, you know, in an overnight situation, usually you stay up too late and you play a little too hard and, you know, these kinds of things. Well, their mother, Wendy, had come in to correct us several times, and we were not heeding her correction. And so finally she came in and she said, all right, boys, roll over. I'm going to have to give you a spanking. And I thought, well, this is different, you know. I'm at somebody else's house, and she's going to give me a whoop in here. I'm not sure how this is going to go. And so we all sort of roll over and are laying there thinking, huh, here we go. And she walks by, no kidding, one after the other, like it was an assembly line. She just goes, swat, 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 about that hard. And so I'm laying there, and um, she goes, turns around, she turns off the light, closes the door, and leaves. And my friends, BJ and Toby, start weeping. And I went, my friends are wusses. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, I really was thinking, is that all you got? You know, that was nothing. And it didn't bother me one bit. And it, you know, it occurs to me years later, uh, <laughs> what Ben and Toby were grieving about was not that their mom had inflicted such pain. It was that their behavior inflicted such pain on her. They had disobeyed. They had grieved their mom's heart. And they had to be corrected and disciplined. And it grieved them that that's what their behavior brought them to. And I would tell you, friends, that's, that should be our heart's response towards sin. We should grieve our own sin. We should grieve the sin of other people's because it offends the heart of the Lord. When I was a student at Biola, there was, this, there was an art major one day who gave us basically what I would call a living sermon. The lights of the gym were turned out. And he rolled in a platform that he had made that had wheels on it. And he brought it into the middle of the gymnasium floor. And when the spotlights came on, he was dressed in sackcloth. And he had his head shaved. And he got on top of the platform, which was filled with ash. And he took the ash, and you could hear. I mean, the room was absolutely silent. You could hear just the sound of ash being just rubbed over his skin. And you could, you could hear the weight of it sort of falling back to the... A platform, and you could see it sort of atomized in the, in the spotlights. And for about a minute or two, he practiced a lament for sin. He said nothing. And I remember watching it and just thinking, on one hand, this is beautiful, and this is what we don't do. We're not grieved for our sin. We're not grieved for it. 
We don't see how it offends the Father. We should be grieved for our sin and for others because it grieves the heart of God. We should repent of our sin because God forgives. Hear that, church? Yeah, grieve for it, but we should repent because God forgives. And the way to forgiveness is through repentance. In fact, there is power in repentance. Satan has a power in your life with sin when you keep it secret. But when you repent and you name it and you bring it into the light, that's where Jesus lives. And that's where Jesus reigns. We should repent because God forgives. And something remarkable happens here in this passage. And the scriptures will often see a prophet or a man of God grieving over sin and crying out in repentance. But rarely do we see the people respond. And here, the people respond. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, and the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. And that leads us to our Last point here, which is this. Not only should we grieve because it grieves, sin grieves the heart of God. Not only should we repent because there's forgiveness, but we go on to change our ways because obedience is for our own good and for the glory of God. John the Baptist teaches in the New Testament, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, which is a way of saying you're sorry for sin, great. Let it show up in your change of behavior. Let your sorry show up and change. Now, I'll tell you this. This is, this is almost a scandalous change of action here, though. I mean, if we, could, we could study this passage for weeks, and it would still be hard. Effectively, what is being asked here is the people are being told, get rid of your wives and your children of those who you have intermarried with. Get rid of them and send them off. Doesn't sound very Christian, does it? It's tantamount to divorce. Now let me pause right here and say this. Do not hijack this passage to let it justify your heart for divorce or something like that. Don't do that because that's not the point here. In fact, Derek Kidner has a very good correction to that kind of thinking. And I want to quote him here because he says it so well, better than I could. He says, broken marriages had been rife at this time for the very opposite of the present reason. There had been a scandalous number of Jewish wives abandoned in favor of heathen women. While divorce is always hateful to God, and that's the word Malachi uses, hateful to God and a witness of the hardness of the human heart, the situation in Ezra 9 and 10 is a classic example of one in which the lesser of two evils had to be chosen. Is that challenging or what? But they pursued purity. They wanted to get back to obedience. And so they took this hard act of sending off these foreign women who they ought not to have married and the children born to them. A couple of thoughts in conclusion here. 
This passage teaches us again and again that the protagonist in the story, the hero of our story, it's not the first wave, it's not the second wave, it's not the leaders, it's not even Ezra himself. The hero in this story is God himself. It is God whose hand is upon the people and upon Ezra and who leads them to do his will. So while Ezra's training is admirable and his qualifications and everything that happens is really respectable of at least the second wave of people, it's God who is consistently shown to be the primary agent acting for his glory. And there's a lesson for us in this, and that is this, that we are to be as pure and as strong as we, as we can be. We are to pursue obedience. We are to love the Lord. But we are to remember that we are but an instrument in his powerful hands. So when we're at our best and we've done well, we have to remember it's the hand of the Lord that was upon us. And when we've done our worst, as New Testament Christians, we have to remember that it was the pierced hands of our Savior which spared us from the wrath that we deserve. God is a God of anger and wrath towards sin, but his wrath is protected in the pierced hand of Jesus. And we activate that saving work of Christ through faith and through trust and through belief in him. God's punishment for sin will fall either on us or on Jesus. And faith makes the decision as to whom it will fall. This morning, if the band will come forward, the worship team will come forward, I have asked them to play for us a song really of, uh, that is confessional. And I want you to take this time to just do some business with the Lord. Perhaps this is the time for you to activate through faith forgiveness for sins in your life. If you've already done that, if you're already a Christian and a believer in Jesus and you already trust in him, but you're convicted of some besetting sin in your life, I would encourage you with the words of John Owen, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Take this time. uh, Come before the Lord in repentance and contrition. So if your hearts will let you sing, then sing. If you need to pray and confess quietly to the Lord, then do that where you are as well.